I'm writing this episode in January 2019. Earlier this month, the American Psychological Association released its first-ever guide for clinicians who work with a group of people who, until this year, have never had their own guide. For decades, there have been guidelines for working with a variety of ethnic, linguistic, and minority populations. Women, people from many, many diverse backgrounds, non-binary folks, the LGBTQ community, a multitude of different language speakers, and on and on. And now, for the first time, the APA is addressing a group that cannot be described as a minority of any kind, and yet, at long last, it seems that they need a guide of their own. This group has historically been considered safe from the trauma of marginalization and immune to the damage that comes from a lifetime of being ostracized or mistreated because the members of this group have long been thought of as the majority or the norm. The group I'm talking about, of course, is men. The guidelines, 10 in all, are designed to target the massive negative impact of traditional masculinity. Recent examination of the ideology of masculinity has found, unsurprisingly, that it can have incredibly damaging effects on mental and even physical health. The result of this damage is fairly stark when we look at the numbers. According to the APA's article on the subject, Men commit 90% of homicides in the United States and represent 77% of homicide victims. They are the demographic group most at risk of being victimized by violent crime. They are 3.5 times more likely than women to die by suicide, and their life expectancy is 4.9 years shorter than women's. Boys are far more likely to be diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder than girls, and they face harsher punishments in school, especially boys of color. One of the things I find most interesting about this new set of guidelines is the history behind why it is now needed. Before the second-wave feminist movement of the 1960s, all psychology was purely the psychology of mostly white men. Almost all major studies were conducted by white men at schools that admitted only white men, so the participants in these studies were all, you guessed it, white men. The results, however, were written and spoken about as though they applied to all humans. White men were the proxies for all of us, and therefore all diagnoses and all treatments were normed exclusively around them and their needs and behaviors. Everyone else was thought of as a special interest group who differed from that norm. You can imagine the problems that arise from this kind of thinking. It was believed that masculinity and femininity were opposites, and good psychological health relied on conforming to one's gender roles. Unfortunately for men, many of the masculine qualities are remarkably toxic and downright dangerous to both the men who follow them and the rest of us. Researchers realize that masculinity is slightly different across cultures, ethnicities, and age groups, but there are several common themes that appear over and over. Themes like, and I'm quoting the APA again here, anti-femininity, achievement, a shul of the appearance of weakness, and adventure, risk, and violence. So why are we talking about this? Well, as I said, one of the main reasons for this new set of guidelines, which you can find linked on our show page if you want to read it, is that it is now clear that treating men as the norm and holding up traditional gender roles as the gold standard is harmful to everyone. It cuts out important information about other groups and minimizes the validity of research findings. 
What we need instead is exploration and study of all groups. Undoubtedly, the major lack of research on non-white men has been extremely limiting to the field of psychology, and we need to broaden both the subject pool and the people who design and carry out this research. To say, however, that men have always been the only ones in the lab is a huge mistake. The truth is that many women have made huge contributions to the field only to be obliterated when it comes time to write the history books. This episode will barely scratch the surface of the missed and intro to psych category, but it will give you a brief overview of four of the groundbreaking American psychological researchers who just happen to have been women. Welcome to Psychologia, a scientific exploration of the strange and pathological. I'm your host, Amaya Perda. Mary Whitten Calkins was born on March 30, 1863, in Hartford, Connecticut, to Walcott and Charlotte Whitten Calkins. She was the eldest of five children, and she later said that her family was the center of her life. When she was 17, they moved to Newton, Massachusetts, and she went too. She lived there, with her family, for the rest of her life. Calkin's father was very active in his children's education, and he planned her schooling so that she was able to enter Smith College as a sophomore in 1882. Just one year into her undergraduate studies, however, her younger sister Maud died. Maud was just 18 months younger than Mary, and the loss was devastating. Calkins decided to spend the next year at home and took private lessons in Greek instead of returning to Smith. In the fall of 1884, she decided to go back, and she graduated in the spring of 1885 with majors in both classics and philosophy. The next year, she had the chance to travel through Europe, and she spent several months studying in Greece. This led to her appointment as a teacher of Greek at the brand-new Wellesley College for Women in 1887. As the new school was expanding its curriculum, the Department of Psychology began to plan for a course in psychology. Calkins was asked if she would like to teach this class, provided she go back to school for a year and get trained in the subject. She was interested in lab-based experimental psychology, and she didn't want to leave her family, which meant that the best and only option was Harvard. But there was a problem. At the time, Harvard was an all-male school, and the powers that be refused to allow Calkins even to sit in on seminars. But she was determined and she rallied the forces around her, so with support from Wellesley and an intervention from her father, she managed to convince the school to let her attend graduate courses, as long as it was clearly understood by everyone at the university that she was not setting a precedent for more co-education, and that Calkins was not a student at the school, but just a faculty member from another college looking for some postgraduate instruction. So, in October of 1890... Mary Whitten Calkins started to attend seminars at Harvard, taught by no less than William James and Josiah Royce. 
When the other students in one of James's courses all dropped out, she was left alone, and she learned one-on-one from the man who had just published the foundational book, Principles of Psychology. Meanwhile, she also took classes at Clark University in Worcester, where she had private instruction from Edmund Sanford in experimental psychology, and she conducted research on dreams. In the fall of 1891, Calkins went back to Wellesley and established the first-ever laboratory for experimental psychology at a women's college. Now that she had a place to work, she taught coursework in psychology and led her students in experiments on subjects like sensation and association. Even though she was now leading one of the only psychology labs in the country, she was unsatisfied with the year of training that she had had. She petitioned Harvard once again for permission to enroll, this time under the supervision of the new head of psychology, Hugo Munsterberg. Once again, she was allowed to study, but not to officially enroll. She worked for Munsterberg for the next three years, and she was so impressive that in 1894 he wrote to the president of Harvard, Charles Eliot, asking that Calkins be formally admitted for a doctoral degree because she was the most skilled student he had come across during his tenure. I'm sure you can guess what Eliot's response was. Despite the fact that she was a massively good student who made major contributions to the lab, and despite her success as a professor and the founder of her own lab, and despite the accolades heaped upon her by everyone who worked with her, Mary Whitten Calkins was denied the opportunity to get her doctoral degree. The faculty members of the psychology department saw this as an egregious error, and so in 1895 they held an unsanctioned doctoral examination. On the panel were William James, Josiah Royce, Hugo Munsterberg, and three other psychology professors. At the end of the exam, all six unanimously recommended that Calkins be awarded a PhD. But still, Harvard refused to give the degree to a woman. Instead, in 1902, Calkins and three other women who had also done graduate work at Harvard were offered doctoral degrees from Radcliffe College, which was the women's school associated with the all-male Harvard. Calkins saw this offer as a weak compromise, and she refused the degree, saying, I sincerely admire the scholarship of the three women to whom it is to be given, and I should be very glad to be classed with them. I furthermore think it is highly probable that the Radcliffe degree will be regarded generally as the practical equivalent of the Harvard degree. And finally, I should be glad to hold the PhD degree, for I occasionally find the lack of it an inconvenience, and now that the Radcliffe degree is offered, I doubt whether the Harvard degree will ever be open to women. On the other hand, I still believe that the best ideals of education would be better served if Radcliffe College refused to confer the doctor's degree. You will be quick to see that holding this conviction, I cannot rightly take the easier course of accepting the degree. It didn't end there. In 1927, 13 of Harvard's most prominent alumni, including psychologists Robert Yerkes, Edward Thorndike, and Robert Woodworth, petitioned Harvard once again to grant Calkins the degree. She had earned the degree, they said, and yet the university said there was no reason to give it to her. Efforts to have Harvard confer a PhD on Mary Whitten Calkins continue to this day, nearly a century after her death, and still the school refuses. None of this sexist degree nonsense stopped Calkins from working to advance the field of psychology. 
Her work on association is still considered some of the foundational research of the 20th century, and the piece she wrote that would have been her doctoral dissertation put forth the concept that we now call the paired associate technique, in which people learn pairs of items so that the presentation of one helps with the recall of the other. Calkins was enormously respected by her peers, and in 1905, she was elected the first female president of the American Psychological Association. She went on to conduct important research in an area she called self-psychology, which is an introspective psychology that sees the self as, quote, the person or organism which is conscious, which experiences, which functions, which drives or is driven. She believed that this self should be the foundational unit for the study of psychology. Over the course of her career, Mary Whitten Calkins published four books and over a hundred articles on both psychology and philosophy. Despite Harvard's narrow-mindedness, she received honorary degrees from both Columbia University and Smith College and was offered positions at both schools. But she chose to stay at Wellesley for her entire career, which allowed her to stay home and care for her parents. She believed deeply in the importance of relationships with others. The year that she died, she published an autobiography in which she wrote, With each year I live, with each book I read, with each observation I initiate or confirm, I am more deeply convinced that psychology should be conceived as the science of the self or person as related to the environment, physical and social. Margaret Floyd Washburn, Career Focuses Comparative Psychology, Consciousness, Cognition, Perception, Motor Skills, Emotions, Individual Differences, and Aesthetics. The first woman to earn a PhD in psychology. Margaret Floyd Washburn was born July 25, 1871, in New York City. She was raised in Harlem, and her father Francis was an Episcopal priest, while her mother, Elizabeth Foy, was a member of a prosperous New York family. Washburn was an only child, and she spent a lot of her time around adults. She learned to read very early, and when she started school, she advanced very quickly. In 1886, she graduated from high school at the age of 15 and started attending Vassar that year. She studied philosophy through poetry before being introduced to the field of psychology. When she got her undergraduate degree in 1891, she was determined to study in the new psychological laboratory at Columbia under James McKean Cattell. This next part will probably sound familiar. Columbia would not let her enroll as a graduate student because they didn't allow women to be graduate students. So she was admitted as an auditor and allowed to attend classes without being an official member of the student body. Cattell, to his credit, did not let this distinction change the way he treated her. Washburn studied and conducted research alongside the male students, and after her first year of grad school, she applied to the brand new Sage School of Philosophy at Cornell to get her PhD, since Columbia would not confer the degree on an auditor. She was accepted to Cornell in 1891 with a scholarship. At Cornell, she studied under Edward Titchener and was actually his first graduate student. In 1894, she became the first American woman to earn a PhD in psychology. 
Her main area of research was the study of consciousness and mental processes in both humans and animals. In 1908, she published her most famous work, The Animal Mind, which is a compilation of experiments exploring conscious processes like learning and attention in animals. Other people had done similar research before her, but Washburn's text unified this particular area and it laid out the definitions and the vocabulary that would become the standard. She did not admit any speculative or anecdotal materials in this book, sticking instead completely to empirical studies, which meant that her first edition was somewhat sparse. But the book would go on to be updated and re-released in 1917, 1926, and 1936. Washburn's mentor at Cornell, Edward Titchener, is best known for his attempts to describe the structure of the mind. He believed that the mind could be broken down into its composite pieces the same way that a chemical can be broken into its component parts. He called this theory of psychology structuralism. In the years after she graduated, Washburn moved away from Titchener's thinking. She disagreed with the way that he reduced the mind into parts, and she developed her own thoughts on the subject, which she put out in her second book, Movement and Mental Imagery, which was published in 1917. This book outlined her motor theory of consciousness, which stated that motor movement is crucial to psychological processes, especially learning, attention, and emotion. She said that animals' ability to see movement at a distance and wait to respond meant that there are an array of possible incomplete actions which produce motor excitation and prepare the animal to act. Higher mental processes, she wrote, happen only when an animal sees something far enough away that it can delay its reaction. This gap between the first perception and then the action, during which there are slight, small, physical movements done to prepare for the action, is when the animal learns and makes decisions. Essentially, she believed that thinking is based in movement, and therefore consciousness is tied to motor activity. Washburn held several teaching positions over the course of her life and maintained many of the contacts that she made at Cornell. She was well-known, and she was passionate about both teaching and continuing to learn. While she was teaching at Wells College, for example, she continued to make the 25-mile trip to Cornell every week to attend seminars, which was pretty far in the pre-car era. The general policy of the late 19th and early 20th centuries was that married women could not be teachers or professors at co-educational schools, so Washburn never married. She went on to teach at Vassar for 36 years and brought many of her undergraduate students, all of whom were women, into her lab to conduct research. She was a prolific writer and put out a total of 127 publications, many of which included her students as co-authors. She was elected president of the APA in 1922, and she died in 1939 of a stroke. Her theory that behavior and action are part of cognition is still considered a major early contribution to our understanding of human thinking. Inez Beverly Prosser, Career Focus Educational Psychology, the first African-American woman to complete a PhD in psychology. Inez Beverly Prosser was born in Texas in about 1895. No one knows the exact year. Her mother, Viola Hamilton, was a homemaker, and her father, Samuel Andrew Beverly, was a waiter. Prosser was the eldest daughter in a family of 11 children. The Beverlys moved around Texas a bit when she was a child, first to Yoakum in 1900, then to Corpus Christi in 1907. 
1908, Prosser and her older brother Leon went back to Yoakum to go to high school there. She graduated in 1910 as the valedictorian of the Yoakum Colored School, and she enrolled in Prairie View State Normal and Industrial College later that year. The school is now Prairie View A&M. She earned a teaching certificate in 1912. She started teaching right after she graduated, working at several of the all-black elementary and high schools in the Austin area. She spent most of her time as an English teacher at Anderson High School, where she also coached a girls' spelling competition team. During this phase of her life, she met a man who worked as an elevator operator at a local department store. His name was Alan Rufus Prosser, and she married him in 1916. While she was still teaching at Anderson, Prosser began to work on her master's degree. At this time, black students were not allowed to get graduate degrees anywhere in the state of Texas. But she refused to let that stop her. So instead, she got her degree out of state through the University of Colorado. She didn't have a bachelor's degree, so she had to finish her undergraduate work over the summers when she wasn't teaching and through correspondence courses. In August of 1927, Prosser graduated with a master's in education. Even though her degree was in education, she was very interested in psychology, and she took a series of classes on topics like mental tests and measurement and research methods. Her thesis, The Comparative Reliability of Objective Tests in English Grammar, looked at the reliability of four different grammar tests that she herself created. After designing the tests, she administered them to 303 students at Anderson High School and conducted statistical analysis in order to show that her battery of tests were helpful in assessing English grammar. After she got her master's, Prosser got a position teaching at Tillotson College in Austin. She taught education and psychology there for three years. And then in 1930, she moved to Tougaloo College near Jackson, Mississippi, where she worked as both a faculty member and the school's registrar. At the same time, she was also the principal of the Tougaloo High School. In 1931, Prosser applied to the General Education Board to get funding for doctoral study. She said that she wanted to do research that would advance the teaching methods for elementary and high schools, and she was awarded $1,000 towards one year of a PhD program. She enrolled in the University of Cincinnati later that year and studied under psychologist Dean Louis Augustus Peckstein. Her doctoral dissertation was titled Non-Academic Development of Negro Children in Mixed and Segregated Schools, and it focused on how the differences between these schools would impact the students. She found that black students did better at segregated schools and that black students in racially mixed schools tended to be more introverted, had more trouble adjusting socially, and were less satisfied in their relationships with their teachers and families. Her dissertation was approved in June of 1933, and she became the first African-American woman to earn a doctoral degree in psychology. Over the course of the next two years, she published a series of seven articles about topics related to teaching English, and her career seemed to be on the brink of taking off. She encouraged her siblings to go to school and even helped fund their education. All ten went on to graduate high school, and five even earned college degrees. Then, on August 28, 1934, Prosser was driving back to Mississippi after visiting her family in Texas when she got in a head-on collision with another car. She was thrown through the windshield and rushed to the Tri-State Sanitarium in Shreveport, Louisiana, 
but her injuries were too severe. She died in the hospital on September 5, 1934. She was not yet 40 years old. The epitaph on her tombstone says it all. How many hopes lie buried here? Marta Bernal, career focuses, clinical psychology, cultural psychology, minority mental health, ethnic diversity, and conduct disorder. The first Latina to earn a PhD in psychology. Marta Bernal was born in San Antonio, Texas in 1931. Her parents, Enrique and Alicia Bernal, emigrated from Mexico before she was born, and she grew up in a Spanish-speaking household. She would later talk about the experience of being bullied because of her skin color and accent and the challenge of not being allowed to speak Spanish in school. She said these things made her feel a sense of shame about her heritage, but that she also had a strong connection to her identity as a woman of color. This would go on to inform her work for the rest of her life. Bernal earned her bachelor's degree from the University of Texas in 1952 and decided that she wanted to go to graduate school to study psychology. Her father strongly discouraged her from continuing her education. He was against the idea of higher education for women and told her that at her age, she should focus on finding a husband and raising a family instead. Her mother and sister, however, adamantly supported her and their persistence paid off. Her father did come around and he finally gave his permission for her to go to grad school. In 1955, she got her master's degree from Syracuse University and then in 1962, she became the first American Latina to earn a PhD in psychology from Indiana University, Bloomington. Bernal's focus was on clinical psychology and she worked mainly with children who suffered from conduct disorder, but she was also passionate about issues around minority health and multicultural psychological treatment. When she went on sabbatical in 1979, she dove into this area and she was shocked to realize how unconsciously racist she herself had become. She later said that she thought the study of psychology had slowly and secretly indoctrinated her so that her own ideas about race and clinical treatment of minorities were racist. This revelation led her to totally change her focus, and she went on to work almost exclusively in cultural and ethnic psychology. She began to put a lot of energy into recruiting and training Hispanic psychologists, and she helped to create the Board of Ethnic Minority Affairs for the APA. She founded the National Hispanic Psychological Association, and she served on the APA's Commission on Ethnic Minority Recruitment, Retention, and Training. On top of all of that, she was also a member of the Committee on Gay, Lesbian, and Bisexual Affairs. Her research focused on ethnic minority issues and the study of ethnic identity, and she published an impressive 60 journal articles and several books. Over the course of her career, she taught courses at many schools, including UCLA, the University of Denver, and Arizona State University. Unfortunately, she was diagnosed with cancer, which came back three times, every time requiring her to take a break from her work. In 2001, 
just as she was preparing to accept an award for distinguished contributions to psychology in the public interest, the cancer finally overcame her and she died. Her legacy as a mentor and a champion for Latino and Latina psychologists lives on, and her work to expand the research of ethnic identity has certainly cemented her place in the field. All of these psychologists broke important barriers for women in the field of psychology. Their determination and their contributions deserve attention and respect, both of which seem to be all too often denied. Thankfully, more and more people are now digging in, insisting that these stories be told. I could go on and on about the many other overlooked women in science, art, politics, etc., etc., but instead I'll leave it with this. It is incumbent upon all of us to educate ourselves. Just as these four women did, we must make an effort to learn, even when we are not handed the information or given permission to seek the answers. There is always more beneath the surface, and the powers that be are disinclined to give space to the voices of the oppressed. So go forth, read the books, and then ask the question, what else might be true? Thank you for listening to Psychologia. This episode was created and produced by me, Amaya Perda, with original sound design and music composition by Cameron Carter. I owe a huge debt of gratitude to Alexandra Rutherford at York University in Toronto, whose project Psychology's Feminist Voices provided me with heaps of information for this episode. If you like what we do, please take a moment to write us a review, or at least give us a few stars on iTunes. It really helps us out. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Psychologia Podcast or Twitter at Psychologia Pod and visit our website for links to source materials or to subscribe to the Psychologia Report at psychologiapodcast.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another scientific exploration of the strange and pathological.